You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 12 to 16 tonight. It's been wonderful uh, just having an opportunity to be studying the book of James. Um, it's so practical, and so many people you talk to, it's one of their favorite books of the Bible. So it's a wonderful uh, study to get to look at. And uh, we're going to start by reading together James chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. Let's give our attention to God's word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the teaching of his holy word. James here is kind of wrapping up his discussion of trials and tests that we began looking at a month or two ago at the beginning of this. He talked about these testings of our faith, and we saw that these tests include both the trials and temptations that we go through. And, and he took a little detour to look at a few other things, but he's coming back to wrap up this theme. And so he, he begins in verse 12, saying that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James is saying that when you go through these trials, and it produces this steadfastness in your faith, that's a blessed place to be in. That's a wonderful place to be in. You're actually blessed of God when you're seeing him strengthen your faith through the trials he puts you in. And he says when he's stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The ones that persevere through trials are the ones that love God. And these ones that love God, whom God preserves through their hardest times in life, those are the ones that receive that crown of life true, glorious, and eternal life with God in heaven. It's what James calls in chapter 2, verse 5, the heavenly inheritance. What a glorious end there is for the one that perseveres through the trials and temptations of their life. But before James leaves this discussion of temptations and trials, he needs to deal with an objection an objection relating to the concept of temptation that clearly some in these congregations were bringing up. And actually, it's a philosophical objection, a philosophical objection regarding temptations to sin. And the issue here is, where, tempt, where do temptations come from? And where does ultimate responsibility lie? And so James quotes this common philosophical objection people are bringing up in verse 13. Look, look there. People are saying, I am being tempted by God. That is, they're saying God is the source of my temptations. God is the one tempting me. That's an interesting objection. Uh, you might remember the, um, when Tom Sawyer made his excuse, the devil made me do it. Uh, but I feel like I've seen far more often an excuse for sin people give is God made me do it. God led me there. Perhaps you've thought that 
uh, yourself, that God brought about this temptation that I would fall into. Perhaps God wants me to struggle with this particular sin. Or clearly it seems God wanted me to fall into this sin. This, however, is an unbiblical and unrighteous distortion of the truth of God's sovereignty. And it's a distortion that has dire consequences, the dire consequences of removing our personal responsibility for sin. For you think, if God is tempting you to sin, how could you say no? If God is leading you into sin, who are you to resist God? And so the question we're faced with in this text is how do we relate the truths of God's sovereignty over sin with the truth of our personal responsibility for sin. And it's really important that we answer this question biblically. And we have help from James in this text. And we are going to be getting into a little bit of philosophy tonight. So if that scares you, it's okay. Buckle up. I'll try to make this clear. Okay, so just before we jump into this text, I need to bring two categories to your mind, okay? There are two ways of trying to deal with this issue of how God can somehow be in control of all things, and yet somehow we still be responsible for the decisions that we make. Okay, so God's in control, we're responsible. There's two views. The, the, the first view says these are compatible, that they can both be true at the same time. That view is called compatibilism, right? Because they're compatible. They somehow work together. The second view says it doesn't work. God can't be fully sovereign and us still responsible, and that would be called incompatibilism, okay? That these two views are incompatible. And so here's how the incompatibilist is thinking about things. They have to remove one or the other, because they say both can't be true at the same time. So either they say, well, maybe God doesn't know the future and isn't quite in control of all things. Maybe the future is open to God. Uh, some Christians that believe this are called open theists, okay? Um, th because they think it's incompatible, one of those truths has to go. So they get rid of God's total sovereignty. On the other hand, and this is probably far more common in the circles most of us are familiar with, is they deal with this problem by getting rid of the truth of human free will and of true human responsibility. We sometimes call that hyper-Calvinism. It's saying these truths can't both be true at the same time, therefore this one's got to go. But the Orthodox Reformed faith, and what we believe comes from Scripture, is that we confess a compatibilist view, that God is both sovereignly in control of all things, and we have a free will that is responsible for the decisions that we make. Scripture affirms both. And here's why people are tempted towards incompatibilism. Because it makes more logical sense. They say, when I think about it, and I apply my reason, if God is fully in control, then I don't really have a choice. It doesn't make sense to me. Or they say, um, perhaps we have no choice, or perhaps God doesn't know the future. That would make things make a lot more sense. And here's the problem there. The problem is that that is allowing our weak and faulty human understanding to stand in judgment over God. As soon as you come up with any sentence that has something, um, well, it must be this way, or because of the way I understand things, therefore it cannot be the case, you're putting God in a box and the box of your own reasoning. This is called rationalism. And it's been a detriment to the Christian faith wherever it's gone. You may not know this, but 
rationalism was rampant in this country in the late 1700s. The fastest growing church in the U.S. in the late 1700s was the Unitarian Church. You may not be familiar with this, but the Unitarian Church believes there's only one God. They don't believe the Father, Son, and Spirit because they said the Trinity was an irrational doctrine. God can't both be one and three at the same time. So they got rid of God's threeness and said, God is only this one God out there. And that let liberalism into the church, and it destroyed the church for about 50 years. Church attendance at that time was only about 13%. It was really low. This, was, this is a devastating, um, a devastating infection in the church, rationalism, where we say, God, you need to fit into all of my boxes and preconceived notions. It's, a, it's an exaltation of the human mind that says, there's not allowed to be mystery. But why would we want to worship a God that we could fully understand? God is beyond us. We said in our call to worship that his greatness is unsearchable. And so a healthy church has a healthy category of mystery, that there are truths we have to confess that we may not fully understand. And so as we're considering this, James helps us with our doctrine of free will and a proper way to think about God. Okay, so let's look back at the text. Give your attention to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so first off, God cannot be tempted with evil. As simple as that. James says God can't be tempted with evil. And he'll say in the next verse that temptations come from evil desires. So that is to say that God cannot have evil desires. God can have no taste for evil and no inclination towards evil and therefore can never be tempted by evil. We, we, we know that you are, you're only tempted towards foods that you have a taste for, that, that you enjoy, right? That is the one you're drawn to. Um, if, if, if you were at my house um, sometime in the fall and you brought some candy corns or cinnamon hearts, those present no temptation to me. Um, I have no taste for candy corn or for cinnamon hearts, and therefore, there's no allure. There's nothing intriguing to me about those concoctions. God will never have a taste for evil, for anything wrong ever. If God was to have a taste for evil, he would cease from being God, because the desire for evil is a corruption. Which, mean, which means God would no longer be God. He would be less than an infinite, perfect, and eternal being. And because God can't be tempted by evil, God himself has no evil inclination to tempt anyone. Again, James says very clearly, God tempts no one. And if your understanding of the way you think about how God is in control of all things, if that leads you to the thought that says, no, clearly God does tempt me, then you are allowing your reasoning to be greater than God's word. Because this is clear in God's word. God tempts no one. And we are called to submit our fallen human reasoning to the truth of God's word. So to say that God tempts no one, what this means is that God does not seek to induce anyone to sin. God does not have the intent in his heart to induce anyone to sin. However, we do know in Scripture that God is said to test his people. We're told how God tested Abraham. He tested Israel in the wilderness. And so what's the difference here between a test and a temptation? Um, the, the, the difference is, the, in the, is this. 
in that a test anticipates a positive result. A temptation hopes for a negative result. That is, tests are meant to be passed, temptations are meant to be failed. Okay, let me illustrate the difference, because the character of God is at stake here. So, uh, a long time ago, when I was back living at home, I forget the exact circumstances, but I might have been like on a diet or something, and I was trying to not eat junk food, and I came up the stairs from my bedroom one day, and on the banister, there was just like this nice little pile of really nice salty uh, chips that were just waiting. And so I was like, I should grab a couple chips. And I grabbed a couple chips. And as I grabbed the chips and was starting to eat them, around the corner, my little brother pops out with a video camera. It's like, ha, 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 I got gotcha. you. You fell for it. You fell for it. You ate the chips. And he was so proud that he had uh, caught me and lured me into breaking my personal goals. That was him tempting me. He wanted me to fail his test and go for the chips that I knew I needed to refrain from at that time. However, let's imagine a different scenario if Julie and I were having some people over and Julie's putting out some bowls of chips. And maybe we talk ahead of time and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to stay away from the chips. And she says, yeah, that, that, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you later. Be like, okay, I'll stay away from the chips. Is she trying to tempt me when she's putting out the chips? No, there, there's a good time and place for chips to be enjoyed in moderation. And therefore, that is not a temptation as much as it's, it, it's a test for me and one that she's hoping I will pass and will help me, and be able to say, this is actually an opportunity to exercise self-control, to be more prepared for the future when I may be at other parties that have plentiful bowls of chips available. And all things like these chips, the good things in life are meant to be enjoyed in, in proper times and in proper ways, but our corrupt desires want things immoderately at the wrong time, apart from God's law. And they are meant to be enjoyed. And so the test is not a temptation to sin, but it's an opportunity to obey, and actually even an opportunity to experience joy in God. Uh, if you were given a test in school and you failed the test, would you blame the teacher saying, you wanted me to fail, you were intending me to fail? No, you're given the test in hopes that you would pass it. And when God is testing our faith, God doesn't test our faith with trick questions and gotcha moments to, to try to lure you in, to trip you up. That's not the heart of God. God's character isn't like Corey standing around the corner just waiting till we fall so that he can catch us in the act and post it on YouTube. No, uh, it's more like Julie, so, so, so supportive, knowing that we're, we are going to go through testing in this world, but he's there with us in it. He's preparing us for it, and he is cheering us on that we might keep his word. God's heart is never to see you fall. And if you believe that, you need to, again, subject your reasoning to Scripture and see God's true heart. And so if God doesn't tempt us, what then should we make of our temptations? How should we think about where our temptations come from? Well, look at verse 14. James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James' simple response is that temptations come from your own desires. He says that your desires, they lure you and they entice you. And, and the literal words here are luring as in like a fishing lure, and enticed could be baited. 
So our desires are like lures and bait. And what, what are lures and bait used for, right? They're attractive things that are meant to trick the fish into thinking something is good for him when it's really bad. Um, I, I haven't done tons of fishing in my day. Uh, what I have done was some uh, deep sea fishing off the coast of Vancouver Island. That's kind of where I grew up. And uh, what we do is we'd fish for cod, and we, we would attach these really nice big uh, prawn-looking things, flashy neon uh, with these little fins, and it goes in the water and you jig it up and down, and as you're going in the current and jigging up and down, uh, it simulates a sort of nice uh, flowing motion for this, this, this allure, and you're just hoping that one of those big ling cod will grab it, will fall for the bait for the enticement. But why does the ling cod grab the, the, the cod jig? because it has an appetite for it. It has a taste for it. It thinks that will be a lovely, tasty prawn for my dinner. And so our desires, our lusts, as it were, our evil cravings are what are the attraction for us to the hook of sin. It's our desires that make that hook look good. We think that we will derive some benefit and joy from it when really it's a hook. That's why our, des our desires, later on in James, he calls them deceitful desires. These desires constantly trick us into thinking things will be good for us when they're not. And so we want to understand what, what are these desires and where do they come from? Okay, ever since the um, fall of mankind, every person is born with a corrupt human nature, a sinful human nature. That is, we're all raised with a bent towards evil with corrupt inclinations, with a corrupt well in our heart that overflows in corrupt acts. Uh, at, at our house, we're on a well, and the well water doesn't taste very good. And, little, and what would you know, the well water tastes just as bad at the kitchen sink as it does in the bathroom sink, as it does in the other bathroom sink, because it's all coming from the same source. And so, like that terrible tasting water, all our sinful actions are all coming from the same source, namely a corrupt human heart, a corrupt human nature. These are distorted desires. Okay, but listen up for a sec. This is, here's an important qualification. Your corrupt desires, although they are corrupt and we are held to account for them, those are not considered sinful acts in and of themselves. Okay? A corrupt de desire is not a sinful action. Okay, here's what James says in verse 15. This will help us. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. James says here that it's the conception of desire that produces a sinful action. So what does he mean by this? What he means is that when an opportunity to sin and a desire to sin is acted upon by the human will, that's when a sinful action occurs. When you have a sinful inclination and a willed action, that's when you get a sinful action. And this is important because um, there are differing degrees of responsibility for these differences, right? We, we know intention really matters in matters of law, right? You know the difference between manslaughter where you have accidentally killed someone you are punished for that, but it's different than when there is an intentional murder. The difference is that the will is engaged in one act and not in the other. And so, yes, 
although it is due to our corrupt nature that you would have a corrupt desire, it is when your will actively embraces that corrupt desire that a truly sinful act then occurs. Okay? A, a sinful action requires the um, input of the will. So although you bear guilt for your corrupt desires, you are particularly responsible for your willed actions. And this is actually can be encouraging to us. Because for those of you that are wrestling against evil desires and temptations, if you find that by the strength of God you're able to say no to them and not engage your will, that is a victory. And that is something to celebrate and to rejoice. That even though it ought not be that we have sinful temptations and we won't have them in heaven, the strength to not allow the will to attach itself to them is a victory. And that is something uh, to, to be encouraged about. But again, this text teaches that we bear direct responsibility for our willed actions and choices. And if we bear responsibility, that means that we ought to take responsibility. We need to take responsibility for our sins. And we know that blame shifting is an ever-present temptation, right? Think back to the Garden of Eden. God goes to Adam, Adam blames Eve. God goes to Eve, Eve blames the serpent. We always want to find a way out, a way to excuse why we're not responsible for our particular sins. And really, all blame shifting is blaming God. When Adam is blaming Eve, he's saying, it's this woman you gave me. When Eve, Eve's blaming the serpent, she's saying, God, it's the serpent you put in my path. And so we do the same things today. We excuse our sin because of our mental states or our genetics, the way we were born or the way we were raised. We want to say it's not my fault. And you know what? These things, our constitutions, our genetics, our upbringings, those have an effect on us. They do affect the choices we make. But the fact that we believe in free will means that we do make real choices for which we are responsible, even if those choices are constrained by external factors. That is to say, it is the choosers that bear responsibility. And really, when we consider the Reformed tradition, those that would want to deny the truth of human free will actually have far more in common with atheists, with materialists who believe that everything is, is an outworking of material causes. Atheists, true atheists, don't believe in free will. And so we do not want to fall into atheistic ways of thinking. We, we confess that we do have a soul that is not material. And part of an aspect of our soul is our will, a will that is able to, to choose. And so, if we're to apply this truth of our responsibility for our sinful actions, we need to take responsibility for our sins. And you might think that this is bad news, but it's actually really good news, because if you can take responsibility for your sin, that means you can actually confess your sin, repent for your sin, and turn away from your sin. There's something you can do about it. You can repent and turn away from sin knowing that God forgives those who trust and repent in Christ, knowing further that those who trust in Christ are empowered by the Holy Spirit to flee sin and to forsake it. That means that you are free to say no to sin. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2.11 saying that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in the present age. God's grace is training us to say no. God's grace trains us to say no. Romans 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And therefore, the believer should never fear taking personal responsibility for sin, because in Christ, by the Spirit, you can change, and you are not helpless. And it's actually taking responsibility that's the first step to freedom. And whether you worry that you've never truly repented of your sin, or you've been repenting of your sin for six decades, the call to us is the same. It's to repent again, to believe again. You know every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we we pray, forgive us our debts. So don't worry trying to figure out those things. Repent for your sin today. Trust in Christ today. As Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. Press on. And really, if you're still blaming your circumstances for your sin, or blaming God for your sin excusing yourself, all you're doing is empowering your sin to continue to rule your life. And as we'll see in this next verse, when sin rules your life, it works death. Take a look at verse 15. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So we've seen that when a corrupt desire meets a willed action, it produces a sinful action. But sinful actions that are nourished and cherished become sinful habits. And sinful habits are the paths of death. And so the danger here is in letting sins accumulate. It's in letting sin grow. It's, it's, the danger is that if you coddle your sin and protect your sin and hide your sin, it will only grow up into increasing death. We need to talk about black lace weaving spiders. Okay, Black lace weaving spiders. This is the scariest thing I've heard in a long time. The black lace weaving spider, the mother, it lays some eggs, and it cares for the eggs, protects them, and then the eggs grow and the, 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 the spiderlings be, begin to, to grow, and she cares for them and nourishes them. And then she walks to the other side of the web, and the spiderlings notice the web vibrating. And so they notice where she is. And the spiderlings, after three or four days, they walk over to the mama, they hop on, and they start eating her. They inject poison into her joints, and as try as she might to shake them off, they finish the job until she's dead. These things that she nourished to bring into the world ended up being the things that destroyed her. And imagine this this spider thinking, I've seen this happen to other black lace weaving spiders, but I'm sure it won't happen to me. I think my spiderlings are different. I I think they'll be the nice ones. I think I can raise them up um, to, to, to be different. How silly would that spider be? And yet we always think, I don't think my sin will have that bad of an effect. This is just a small sin. This one's not very big. This one's not going to really hurt anyone else. I don't really think anyone needs to know about this. I, I don't think God cares that much about this sin. And you hide it and coddle it and nourish it. And all it's going to be doing is injecting poison into you and slowly killing you. 
We believe lies. That's why James says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived thinking that you can sin and it won't work death in you. Sin, when it's nourished, works death. We believe these times all the time. I'll get away with it. It'll be pleasurable. It's not that bad. It's just a little one. But know for certain that you won't get away unscathed. This is the wisdom that Solomon writes to a young man um, personifying foolishness as, as a seductress. In Proverbs 9, he says, the, the woman folly is calling to those who pass by, and, and this uh, woman folly is saying, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And that is to say, come, you can enjoy this bread in secret. It'll be great. But Solomon ends by saying that this youth does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And if you flirt with sin, she'll quickly overpower you and destroy you. You remember the most dangerous creatures in ancient lore were the mermaids, because they looked so beautiful. But when you would go to touch them or get close, they would pull you off the ship, drag you into the sea, and drown you. Deceptive desires. And so don't be deceived. Sin brings, sin brings forth death. Okay, what kind of death are we talking about here? We know that sin produces physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death for those that are without Christ. But we think, what about for us who are in Christ? Because we know that um, our physical death will be overcome by the power of Christ's resurrection. Our spiritual death is overcome in the regeneration. And even this eternal death is swallowed up with eternal life. So do we have to worry about sin-producing death? And if so, what type of death might that be? Well, yes, we do have to worry about this. And if we as Christians are thinking about sin-producing death, what we're talking about is, is a quality of spiritual life. Okay, No longer the existence of spiritual life, but the quality of the life in our soul. So just as you can be alive physically, but have death working in you, illness and sickness so you can be alive spiritually in your soul and yet have sin-producing deathliness in your soul. Okay, Some of these experiences of death in the soul are the things we feel frequently, things like anxiety and fearfulness and anger and shame and hatred. These are all maladies of our souls. And when we sin, we are walking in a sickness of soul that's reducing our quality of spiritual life. It's reducing our joy in this world. Sin is a sickness of the soul. And to participate in sin is to participate in those very things that are going to damage your life and steal your joy in the Lord. This, again, is an important truth for us to digest. So if the first truth of this text was that we need to take responsibility of, for sin, that we might find freedom, this second truth that sin leads to death is part of the motivation we find to flee sin and to live unto righteousness. And this is a really powerful truth if you grasp it. Okay, really understanding this truth is important. Okay, so back up for a sec. We know that our sinful temptations come from our desires. And you think, how do I change my desires? How can I change my heart's wants? I don't, there, we don't have an on-off switch for our hearts. Well, the encouragement is that very often the heart does follow the mind, and that particular truths 
can actually change the way we feel about things. Um, the knowledge of harm, particularly, can be a powerful force to change the way we feel about something. Um, I was reflecting to someone uh, a day or two ago about the, the trials and triumphs of margarine and butter, and you remember how in, in the 90s, there was no butter to be found. There was only margarine. I remember my, my grandpa had, had, a, had cholesterol issues, and grandma got all, rid of all the butter. It was, it was only margarine. And you know, then the science, um, our understanding changes, and today it's hard to find margarine anywhere. Everyone's back butter's the great thing. And people will adjust and change their preferences based, based on what they know to be helpful or harmful to them. And if we really knew the deathly, deathly danger of our sins, surely we would cast it aside. I know many of you really love coffee and would have a hard time imagining giving it up. But if you found out tonight that every case of cancer was directly a result of drinking coffee, and the only cause of cancer was drinking coffee, I'm sure you would all give it up tomorrow morning. Yes, you'd feel some cravings throughout the next couple weeks, you'd really want it, but you would know it is not worth the risk. It's not worth that level of death that it would produce. And in that same way, when your mind is enlightened to really understand how sinful sin is, how deadly it is, that helps overcome those initial barriers to cast it off, to put it aside. And if this knowledge of this truth, of where sin will lead you, to just be destroying your own soul, that can help you begin a new habit. And new habits are begun by these sorts of convictions. And then habits are cemented by repetition. Okay, you know when you're nailing in a nail, at first you have to hold it, tap it lightly, you have to be very careful, but once it's in just enough, then you can really start making progress and it holds firm. And same with our habituations. At first, you're gonna to have to be very focused on refraining from sin, no compromise, not the, not the smallest glance, not the smallest thought, but over time it gets easier. As the habits are cemented, as your, heart, your heart's desires are transformed, as your character is shaped to be more and more like the character of Jesus, formed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's encouraging. A new character, a new habit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear brothers and sisters, we are in a battle. Do you, do you remember what was said to Cain in Genesis 4, that um, sin desires to have you, but you must master it? Remember how Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat? The same things are desired for us, but we have the assured victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 speaks of Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus bore these sins that we bear personal responsibility for. He bore them and therefore he died the death that we deserved. He died that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we find our healing. What an amazing truth. Though sin ought to have led us to the eternal death, Christ crushes death on our behalf that we might have his life. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And therefore, in our fight against sin, in our frequent battlings, when Satan tempts you to despair, when he tries to tell you of the guilt you have within, 
we follow the instructions and upwards we look, we see Christ there, the one who makes an end to all our sin. Knowing that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free because the just God was satisfied to look on Christ and pardon you and I. And so though you are responsible for your sins, if you trust in Christ, you're not responsible to pay them because he's already paid the debt in full. Jesus co-signed for you and he's covered all your defaulting payments. And although you deserve eternal death, you won't endure it because Jesus bore it in your place. And as we sang, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. And though our sins be many, his mercy is so, so much more. Richard Sibbs is well known as saying that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. So don't despair, because Jesus has freed you from the penalty of sin if you trust in him. The Holy Spirit is working to free you from the power of sin in your life, and one day in heaven you will be freed from the very presence of sin. What a joy that will be. And so we can declare with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 to 58, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor's not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth that helps us to not be deceived. And you have told us that the way of sin is the way of death, but you've also told us the way of escape through our Lord Jesus. We thank you for declaring the good news of Christ to sinners such as us, that we might be freed to enjoy eternal life with you. Lord, for those struggling under and against indwelling sin, would you grant them courage to once again strengthen the weak arms, strengthen the weak knees, to run the race you've set before them, to fight again, to try again, to get up again, forgetting about what lies behind, pressing on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that we would all be running the race of faith, casting aside the sin that clings so closely with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who not only is the author of our faith, but also the finisher and perfecter. So Lord, train us by your grace. Train us to look to Christ day in, day out. May we not be deceived. May we take responsibility and confess our sins that we might forsake them by the power of the Spirit and grant your people the joy of living as free people through Jesus, freed to fight, freed to live, all for his sake. In his name we pray, amen.